Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. Seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza and appreciate you tuning in today. We've got a great program with a guest I'm very excited about, but first with a few quick news items. My colleague Chris Chimes will get us started. Hey Ben, and a big hey to our listeners. Uh, You're right, Ben, we've got a great guest today, but let's first get to some news. On the Washington scene, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg was confirmed and sworn in this past week as the youngest ever Secretary of Transportation. In Congress, the Aviation Power Axis is clearly tilting toward the West Coast. The House Transportation Committee will continue to be led by Representative Peter DeFazio of Oregon, and the Senate Commerce Committee, with authority over aviation issues, will be led by Senator Maria Cantwell from Washington State. All these leaders are going to be dealing with a host of transportation and aviation issues, but it looks like right out of the gate, airlines are back in line for more federal assistance. American, Hawaiian, and United have sent notice that more furloughs could be coming this spring if more COVID relief isn't provided. Ben, we just finished year in earnings, and we've been talking about these results the past few weeks, but what's with the new furlough notifications and warnings and kind of where are we going from here? Well, Chris, to be fair, United at least said this was going to happen at the time they brought everybody back. They said this may be temporary and, you know, Most airlines didn't realistically expect that by the end of the four-month period of the second relief, that travel would be booming again and they would need all these people. So there was a sense in the industry, and that was some of the criticism of the second relief, actually. And there were some stories out there that just said, you know, sure, it's great that people get paid, especially through the holiday period and things like that, and that they are maintain their seniority and such. But a lot of these people went back to their airlines. Most of them were at American United, to be fair. (laughs) They went back to those airlines and the airlines didn't fly enough more to employ all those people. So they got paid, but not everybody had as much to do. And now we're here coming to the end, at the end of March, at least at the end of this, And the airlines just say, we're not going to need these people. And they're looking at daily cash burn. They're looking whatever they can do to reduce that daily cash burn. And one of the obvious things is why pay people we don't need? And so it's really bad for those employees, but I don't think it's totally unexpected, Chris. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm a fan of the business and I realize the importance of keeping the planes flying and all the commerce involved with that. From a DC perspective, at some point, elected officials are going to kind of give a look to say, you got to get back to the end of the line here. We've got a lot of other people that also want help or maybe didn't get as much help as the airline business did. So I think it's going to be a struggle. I think it's important that labor and industry continue to work closely together. It's been good to see that. But at some point, I think policymakers are going to look back to the carriers to kind of solve some of this themselves. 
uh, versus federal assistance because there's going to be a limit to how much more can be done. I think that's right, Chris. And you know, if Secretary Buttigieg looks fairly and objectively at the industry, he's going to see that not all airlines are the ones pounding on the door saying, let's make this happen. The lower cost carriers as a group have been more aggressive than the big carriers. You know, even if you want to include Southwest in a low cost carrier right now, they've flown a lot in COVID. They've announced service into new big airports like O'Hare and Bush Intercontinental. You've seen JetBlue do their deal with American that'll grow their presence in otherwise slot controlled airports in the Northeast. You've seen Spirit say that we're going to go into Orange County, an airport they didn't have access to before. So as right at the time, sort of American and United are going back saying, we need more money to pay our people, Secretary Buttigieg is going to say, well, wait, not all the industry is thinking like that. And some people are being a little bit more aggressive. So when does it start to be a federal problem for all airlines versus your problem, American and United? Yeah, we saw that uh, after 9-11, frankly. I mean, there was a there was a period by which the industry hung together with labor and they were very effective in getting relief. But, you know, if you recall when you and I were at U.S. Airways, there were, even though everyone supported a federal loan guarantee program as part of the industry support package, there were other carriers actively lobbying against U.S. Airways to get that federal loan that was in the law as a as an option. So at some point, I think the industry might start to fracture a bit. Um, I just think it's important to hang together. I'm not arguing that they shouldn't be provided other assistance, but it's going to be you know tough moving forward just given the atmosphere. Well, I think the biggest thing that could help airlines right now, Chris, is get the vaccine rolled out as quickly as possible so that things can open up again. It's one thing to feel comfortable getting on an airplane. It's another thing having a place to go. And one of the things that's holding back travel demand and airlines' ability to fly more is quarantines, closures, things like that. And I understand why they're in place, and I'm not arguing against those right now, but the quicker that the government can work to acquire and roll out and administer this vaccine, the better it's going to be for the industry, I think. Exactly. All right. Just for fun, we're going to do a... uh kind of a random news item before we uh, get to the rest of the show, but under the category of when life gives you lemons, eat an orange. Uh, Ben, I want your uh, reaction to this. And I love the NPR show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and this almost sounds like a story right out of that program. So unexpected baggage fees can sting like a citrus in your eye when confronted with an excessive extra baggage fee are four business travelers at Kunming Airport in China's Yunnan province teamed up to eat 66 pounds of oranges in under 30 minutes rather than pay the $46 excess baggage fee. Sadly, they failed to consider the consequences of such a citrus overload, and soon after they started complaining of ulcers in their mouths, and I would imagine some gastro issues might have come next. One of the group told China's Global Times newspaper, we never want to have an orange again. Bennett Spirit, I can think of you know all the ways you came up with charging fees for things. Did you have a citrus fee? 
<laughs> well, we didn't have a citrus fee, but maybe that's something Spirit will think of. You know, it's amazing what people do to save bag fees. And I bet they thought it would be fun when they started this. Let me tell you, Chris, my favorite story about bag fees, but this one still beats it. We had a customer when I was at Spirit get arrested in her car in the front of the Fort Lauderdale airport. And the the policeman told her, you got to move, you got to move, you got to move. She kept saying, wait, 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 just a minute, just a minute, just a minute. Finally, he said, enough, I'm going to ticket you. And he said, why didn't you move when I asked you to move? And she said, I've been working on my laptop and my service isn't that good. I'm trying to check in my bag here because it's going to be $6 more if I have to check it in at the gate <laughs> or at the ticket counter. <laughs> And I just thought that was so great that like that, those fees really matter. Now eating 66 pounds of oranges, that beats that. And I don't know that I would have want to been on the flight with those guys. I bet there was big runs to the bathroom during that <laughs> flight too. I can't figure out why they just didn't offer their fellow passengers an orange or something, but why would you uh, sit and eat it all? But anyway, I, I'd seen that in Daily News clip and thought you might enjoy it. We're going to be right back with uh, our special guest, Scott McCartney of The Wall Street Journal. This is Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Chris and I have been talking about how to incorporate more guests into the podcast, and that seems to be of interest to our listeners as well. So that's why I'm excited to welcome Scott McCartney to this week's show. Scott is the author of the always insightful and very popular Wall Street Journal column, The Middle Seat, and his knowledge of travel is grounded in his experience previously covering the airline industry for the journal and other news outlets. The Middle Seat is really a must-read for travel industry executives, employees, policymakers, and consumers. Scott recently published his annual Middle Seat Scorecard for the Best and Worst U.S. Airlines of 2020, and we're thrilled to have him join us on Airlines Confidential to discuss his results. Welcome, Scott. Great to be with you guys. I appreciate it. Well, super. So why don't you tell us about how you do this scorecard, the way you figure it all out, and give us the high-level results for 2020? You know, we've, we've been doing this a long time, been doing it for, for 13 years now. And it's it's based on operational performance. Um, I, I think there's, you know, sort of a, a basic thing here for travelers. Um, they want reliability, and they do want to know which airlines are more reliable than others. So, we track seven different categories, on-time arrivals, cancellations, long delays, mishandled baggage, uh, bumping, complaints, and, and two-hour tarmac delays. And you roll that all together, and, and I do think it gives you a pretty good idea of who's running an efficient, um, reliable operation and, and which airlines aren't uh, as reliable. Scott, how do the data compare to the anecdotal evidence and your your reader emails and comments during the course of the year did did the rankings align with uh, where you thought they'd be yeah they chris they they really do you know there are always outliers right there i mean every airline runs into problems every airline runs into 
customers who feel like they were wronged somehow, but some, you know, uh, fail their customers more than others. And, and that does seem to show up. It was also interesting to me uh, this year in particular, we really wondered what the pandemic would do. And, you know, operational performance wasn't necessarily the, the most important thing to, to travelers this year. And with so much capacity out of the skies, you know, airlines really sort of got a chance to hit the reset button. And, but we went ahead anyway, um, thought, uh, let's, let's see what it does. And it was, I thought, fascinating and, and somewhat validating um, because the airlines that have performed well in the past continue to perform well. The airlines that had uh, struggled some in the past um, were, were at the bottom of the rankings. Everybody did better for the most part, in, uh, in, in operations last year, except for, uh, except for a few categories, um, cancellations, obviously, and complaints, which uh, just skyrocketed. But that was another one with complaints. You know, I had uh, written a lot about refunds. All, mo- almost all the complaints were about refunds. And the problems really, uh, I heard from more United customers, more Frontier customers than anybody else. Uh, and and it certainly showed in the in the complaint data uh, once we put it all together. Those were the two airlines that people had the most problems with in terms of uh, refunds for canceled flights. So you know, all in all, I think it's a it's really a, a pretty good measure. I know several airlines track the the same parameters the same way we do, so that they know how they're going to do in the survey. It's sort of a fascinating thing when I call up and I say. Um, you know, gee, um, uh, United, uh, you were, you know, sixth this year or seventh this year or whatever. And they say, uh, yeah, we know. And uh, <laughs> Alaska tracks it very closely. I hear from some of their data people during the year. How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? Alaska even incorporated into their uh, financial compensation package uh, where uh, bonuses are paid on, on, on many different metrics. But one of them is how they do in the Wall Street Journal scorecard. That must give you a bit of a power trip, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the nice thing about it, the one thing that I like about it is that it's completely based on data. And, and one of the things I hear from readers a lot is, uh, well, how can you say that Southwest is the best or Delta is the best? You know, they uh, their seats are uncomfortable. Their flight attendants aren't as friendly as whatever airline. They're, they, you know, there are a whole bunch of uh, judgment calls in, you know, evaluating which airline is performing better than, than another. And I don't feel qualified to, you know, really make those calls. I don't want to be making those calls and say, well, gee, I like this one better than the other one, or uh, I think they're... You know, there are all kinds of different ways you can look at it, but we stick to data. And and that was another question this year where, you know, should we try and evaluate cleanliness somehow because because cleaning of cabins became such a major issue? Should we try and evaluate airlines on um, mask enforcement or, or, or mask policy or even refund policy? And we just felt like uh, that was too subjective. Well, that's great. So let's get to the results. <laughs> so for the last three years, Delta has been on top. Uh, this year, Southwest unseated Delta. Uh, Delta had a, a had a few problems during the year that uh, knocked it down. Southwest made some improvements. Um, one of them 
more notable one, Southwest, had struggled some with baggage handling um, the last several years. And, and the obvious reason is uh, bags fly free on Southwest. So, so Southwest passengers were checking a whole lot of baggage. And, and that was uh, really slowing their operation down. They finally invested in, in scanning technology. They invested in um, some technology to monitor the health of their baggage systems at, um, at their major airports so they could um, keep them running um, more frequently, uh, avoid shutdowns. And, uh, and it showed their, their baggage handling uh, really improved. So, so Southwest moved up. Delta was, was close behind. At the bottom this year uh, was American. And, you know, American has been last or next to last, uh, I think, in, in 12 of the 13 years um, that we've, we've done this survey. Uh, you know, American uh, was last in baggage handling, um, was was last in involuntary bumping. Uh, bumping was was fascinating to me. Delta bumped, I think, five people during the entire 12 months um, we looked at. Now, they had had an enormous number of people who voluntarily gave up seats from overbooked flights. And that's because they were generous with their with their offerings and have really tried to eliminate involuntary denied boarding. Uh, United has too. Um, they did did well in that category. Uh, American hasn't. American had a real problem with that. They American by itself accounted for 77% of all passengers involuntary, um, involuntarily bumped in the 12 month period. And, you know, I think uh, there, there are still some things to fix in American's operation. Um, I call every year and say, <laughs> when are you going to fix it? And they say things are getting better, but we ran into this problem. We ran into that problem. And um, that pattern continued this year. So you can't predict things like weather and other other external events that impact these results. But if you were sitting here in February of 2021, looking ahead, you know, based on your reporting and based on what you see carriers doing differently, can you predict any kind of movement in this list uh, this time next year? It's hard to predict movement in the list because even when one carrier improves, if everybody else improves, it doesn't necessarily change um, the rankings. I, I do think airlines have, have learned, in talking to operations folks, I think they've learned a lot about canceling flights and schedule flexibility through the upheaval of this year. And I think we'll see some improvement. I, you know, cancellations under 2% of all flights um, had, had had really improved before the pandemic last year. Um, 6% of the, of the flights were canceled. And that's, uh, so we use the DOT standard where um, if, if, a schedule, if a flight is canceled more than seven days before departure, it's a schedule change. It's not a cancellation. If it's inside seven right. days, it is a, it is a cancellation. Um, and I think that's fair. I think that's, you know, sort of classifies as a more disruptive uh, event for the passenger. But I think we'll see some continued Im- improvement there and airlines being smarter about uh, how to tailor their schedules um, going forward. You know, Scott, we have listeners from all airlines. So for those listening who don't work for Delta Southwest or American, can you fill in the gap just for so everyone knows where they landed? Yeah, so Alaska was number three, and uh, Alaska has has performed well in the in the survey um, historically. They do track it very closely. They were um, 
they were number one from 2013 to 2016, even included in some of their advertising and, and all. Um, so Alaska is number three. Uh, Spirit was number four. And, you know, it, it's it's remarkable what's happened with, with Spirit, I think. Um, when we when Spirit first came into the survey, they were near, near the bottom. Um, you may remember some of this well, Ben. <laughs> but, Who was uh, running the airline then? I'm sorry? Is that who was running the airline then? Yeah, no, who was? <laughs> but, but, but Spirit made a, a very determined effort to um, improve its operations, uh, to become more reliable for, for passengers. And it, and it really showed in the survey. Um, so uh, as for the last several years, Spirit was number four. Uh, Allegiant was number five, which I thought was, was interesting. Uh, you know, low-cost carrier, could easily, in a pandemic, um, not perform uh, particularly well, but um, but they did. Uh, Frontier number six, um, JetBlue and United tied at at number seven, and you know there are some some structural issues. JetBlue has an operation heavily concentrated at, at JFK in Boston, and that makes it tough for them. Um, there's there's no doubt about that. I, I do think, and, and Chris, you mentioned weather and all. To, to me, everybody runs into weather. We, we don't, everybody except Hawaiian. I don't include Hawaiian in the survey, um, much to their chagrin, because it's just not the same trying to, you know, operate out of Honolulu as trying to operate out of JFK. But, you know, that said, uh, I really think the measure of an airline is how you respond to the hand you're dealt. You know, how you, how you recover from weather events, how you schedule um, in congested airports. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it uh, that airlines can control even when they're, uh, they're operating out of uh, difficult airports. Scott, is there any one airline that surprised you the most, either because they finished higher than you expected by a lot or maybe lower than you expected? I, I would say I, I really was surprised that Southwest finished on top. Southwest operated a pretty full schedule through the pandemic, and you know they the Southwest has still so many labor-intensive processes and uh, less automation than others. And I, I thought the disruption would have more of an impact on Southwest's operation than it did. And I think that's a you know it's a real uh, tip of the hat to them um, for doing so well with so much disruption. They, they, you know, moved a lot of people around and, you know, domestic traffic was not impacted as severely as international traffic. So they had a lot of work to do and they, and they did it pretty well. To me, the other surprise, and, and this, is, this is sort of an annual surprise, but th- that American doesn't get it together because uh, I, I know they're trying very hard to do that. And uh, they they see the success Delta has had with customers in in um, offering uh, reliability. Uh, it, it has made a difference with business travelers, and they know they need to get better. and And yet they you know they uh, they can't get out of the cellar. And uh, I'm not sure I can really explain why, um, but it, it's a surprise that um, that they don't move up more. Scott. You mentioned that uh, you thought about adding some health metrics to this, but didn't think you could do so objectively. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to since I can. 
How would you have ranked the carries with regard to how they implemented various uh, COVID-related procedures? You know, I just don't know, Chris. I I would have scored carriers uh, higher for blocking middle seats. That's an expensive financial proposition to to do, but I I do think there, there's not only a comfort factor for passengers, but uh, there there is a sort of a common sense factor of the the risk of transmission on an airplane is low. We know that um, the airplane cabin has really strong ventilation, and that and that makes a difference. But at the same time, sitting shoulder to shoulder you know, um, very close to somebody or, or having five people in your row instead of three other people in your row, it does make a difference. Um, the scientific studies have shown that proximity does matter with viral transmission on airplanes. The hot zone is the, you know, the two rows in front, two rows behind. Uh, so it makes sense that um, having somebody in the middle seat does raise your risk. Now, the risk is risk is low, so it doesn't make that much of a difference. But I think statistically, if we had good tracking, we would see that it, it would make a difference. So I think that that was one differentiator. I don't, wouldn't feel qualified. We would have to hire somebody to really sort of do spot checks or evaluate uh, cleaning procedures. I, I wrote one story about cleaning where there were a, a lot of scientists concerned that airlines were overdoing it um, with cleaning products. And some of these products uh, can be toxic in in uh, with with large exposure. Uh, so if you're spraying the cabin down four times a day, five times a day between every flight, are are you overdoing it? Um, we don't know the answer to that question, but I, I think there are still some cleaning issues um, that are the airlines are going to have to figure out. Um, what do they do going forward? It, it's uh, we've also gotten to a point where. You know, we know more about how the virus is transmitted, and and it is more aerosol. I think the concern is more aerosol and less uh, about surfaces. You know, we're not washing our groceries when we get them home anymore. So should we be spraying the cabin um, between every flight? I I think you probably have to for passenger comfort right now, but um, it may not be the best thing uh, for, for the airplane or its passengers going forward. Well, Scott, we've been talking about 2020, but you've been in this industry for a long time. So I want to take advantage of your history, too. You know, after the 9-11 attacks, there were permanent changes in the industry around security. I mean, that's when the TSA was created, right, both at the airports and on board and things. After the financial crisis at the end of the 2000s and when energy prices went way up, there were changes in terms of a massive consolidation where eight big U.S. airlines became four huge U.S. airlines. So I know it's premature, but what's your sense as to what this pandemic and its massive impact on airlines, what might be one or two changes that you think will permanently affect the industry as a result of this? You know, Ben, it's a it's a great question. And, and I don't I don't think it's as obvious as uh, the previous cases you mentioned. Uh, you know, after 9-11, we knew right away we had to do something about security. And there, and there were some important uh, changes, you know, putting uh, hardened doors on the cockpit and keeping them closed uh, made, a, made a huge difference. This time around, I, I would say I think we're going to see changes in terms of 
health issues. I think there will, you know, when you enter a country, I think there there will be health screening involved. Whether you know it it'll be it'll be a COVID test um, for some time until that's not an issue. Um, but uh, I I think in terms of vaccination records or uh, temperature checks or there will be, you know, different precautions that, that countries will take and perhaps more tracking of people who enter the country under the auspices of um, we, we need to know if an, if an outbreak happens. And that may be a really difficult, uh, controversial issue for things. And in terms of airlines, I think we could, you know, just like with the financial crisis, you you know, as I do, we work together on a look at uh, the impact of, of business travel long term. I think that has a, a, a permanent reduction of some measure in business travel that has huge implications for airlines. Um, and I think particularly with international service. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more consolidation if possible, uh, you know, depending on uh, what different countries allow, but certainly uh, maybe greater importance of, of alliances uh, and joint ventures uh, as, as part of a consolidation of international air service. I also think domestically in the U.S., we could see consolidation in sort of the the middle market, um, the, the pressure, not on the, on the, well, the pressure that the big four apply on smaller airlines. And, you know, it, it may be tougher and tougher to go it alone. Um, I think we've seen Alaska try and address this with Virgin America, but, but that may not be enough. Um, we've seen JetBlue and its alliance with American and, and with a lot of international airlines try and bulk up its feed through uh, partnership. But, you know, we'll see if that's enough. So I, I do think the financial pressure uh, that is going to exist for years to come out of this is going to make changes in the business. Scott, if I can speak for Ben and our listeners, uh, I, I want to thank you for joining us uh, on this week's uh, broadcast. This has been great. Hopefully uh, you'll join us again. I'd like to charge you with working on your rankings for the top five airline CEOs and the top five PR pros. No pressure. You can come back and talk to us about that. Thanks again for joining us and look forward to talking again soon. Thanks very much, guys. You know, it's I really enjoy being with you. Respect the heck out of both of you and, uh, and I love uh, doing stuff with you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Scott. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. We're going to be right back to talk about our listener questions and also our fine and wine. This is Airlines Confidential. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. 
Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y capital.com. I'm Ben Baldanza with Chris Chimes, and you're listening to Airlines Confidential. Ben, I love the fact that we've been getting quite a few questions via email these last few weeks, uh, and that doesn't even include a steady flow from what I'm assuming is a Russian bot who's asking us to do some very inappropriate things and talk about them on the air. So I'll skip to the second part of a submission from our friend Matt in Rochester. We covered part one of his question last week, and we held his, his second question for this week. Guys, I assume that directly selling tickets to their customers through an airline's own website is usually going to be the lowest cost way for any airline to sell its tickets. No commissions or other costs to pay other than the normal cost of accepting credit cards. Some airlines also utilize one or more global distribution systems or GDSs to make their tickets more visible to travel agents and to show in online searches outside of their website. How do carriers decide which one or ones to use in general, and how much of a customer's ticket price goes to pay for the GDS? This is a great question, and it gets to one of the real economic issues around distribution for airlines. First of all, airlines that sell through their own website, that is their lowest cost way, but it's not only the credit card fee that they pay. Running a website has its own costs and they have to run, maintain that website, usually maintain a call center for issues and things like that. So it's not free when they sell on their direct website, but it's still, when you collect it all together, it's cheaper than when they sell through a third party like Expedia or Orbitz or a place like that. One thing that most airlines in the US have that customers probably aren't familiar with is a term in their contract with third-party suppliers, meaning travel agents, both online and regular, and the GDSs, and that's called a full content deal. What a full content deal is, is the airline says, in exchange for you hosting my fares and flights on your site and displaying them fairly, meaning when people search to go from on a flight that I fly, I'm going to show up pretty high on that. In exchange for that, I'll give you all of my fares, meaning I won't sell a lower fare on my own website. Now, there is at least one airline in spirit that does not have that deal, and they do charge less on their own website than they do through third parties. And as you might expect, they have a higher percentage of passengers buying direct from them. Frontier Airlines, when they started converting themselves to a lower cost version of what they used to be, they had that full content deal. So they couldn't tell customers, come to our website and we can give you a cheaper price. But as they implemented some new fees at the airline, they exempted people who bought from them versus if they bought somewhere else. So in a way, they did give people an economic incentive to go to their own website. When they implemented a a carry-on bag fee, for example, if you bought from the website, you weren't subject to that fee. But if you bought Frontier from somewhere else, you were subject to that fee. So I'm not sure how successful that's been for Frontier getting their own direct sale percentage up. 
But yes, airlines do want to sell direct if they can, but the distribution strength and efficiency of the GDS network and large online, especially travel agents, is too much revenue for airlines to avoid, so they pay something to them. And as a percentage of the total trip, it's probably not huge, but it's more than if they just sold directly. Chris, you worked at Sabre, and this was part of your business, so how do you see this question? Well, I worked at Sabre and I also worked at Orbit. So I've kind of sat at all three desks around this this table. I, I think a lot of airline people and airline distribution people forget that this tension between suppliers and producers and distributors exists in all industries. You know, there's, there's always tension between auto manufacturers and their dealers, for example. The stories of suppliers of, of goods are going to Bentonville, Arkansas and getting their head handed to them from Walmart are legendary with regard to their expectations on lower distribution costs. So this tension isn't, isn't something that's specific to the airline business. I think the difference sometimes is in the desire to lower their distribution costs, the consumer and the consumer's wishes get left out of the mix a little bit too much. And, you know, I don't know any other business when that when a consumer has a their credit card out and they're ready to buy that they get told to go somewhere else. And I think that's what happened over the past 10 years or so in the airline distribution paradigm. I think it's it's kind of moving back towards the middle. I think GDSs have continued to lower their costs and respond to the demands of aviation interests. And I think they're finding ways to sell their sell airline services in the way airlines want to sell them. But certainly in this period that's ahead of us with regard to the airline industry's recovery or the hopeful recovery, I think more airlines are going to see the need to make their fares and their services widely available and easy to purchase. And so it's up to distributors to, to do it well and do it effect, effectively and efficiently. You're listening to Airlines Confidential. Finer Wine is next, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. Ben, I'm going to preface this uh, for you and listeners alike. This finer wine is a little long, but I'll try to keep it on the rails and moving along. It's from Ephraim in Naples, Florida. And Ben, even though this is about United Airlines, you might want to hide under your seat that doesn't recline because it's all about fees. (laughs) Guys, my sons recently flew on United Airlines for their college break. I discovered a few schemes that United has created to make a supposed cheap fare more expensive. Scheme number one, when you go to check in and enter your booking number, it will guide you through the normal procedure. And then when you go to the carry-on bags, it automatically states that you purchased an economy seating ticket so you do not have the privilege to carry on a bag unless you pay for it. So we had to pay $60 for two very small suitcases that could have easily fit above the seat that we purchased. Instead, the two small suitcases had to be checked. Scheme number two. 
Economy tickets do not allow you to sit with the person you are traveling with unless you pay. Choosing seats used to be if you wanted to sit in first class, but now you have a chart and how much each seat costs if you want to move around the cabin. What's next? Coin-operated storage? Credit card swipes to open the restroom door? How cheap and cheesy where do you need to be to scrape every penny from your passenger? Who in the hell comes up with these ideas? Because they should be fired. Scheme number three. I'm going to dispense with scheme number three because I think we get the we get the gist of this. But Ephraim certainly doesn't like fees. And he concludes with, United knows exactly what they're doing. And that is purchase a more expensive ticket or we will run you through the hurdles and make your experience more difficult. United and Continental merged years back, and now passengers are stuck with fewer options and United Airlines' ridiculous schemes. So, Ben, what do you think about these schemes? Well, I love the use of the word schemes, first of all. (laughs) It's sort of, I can just picture Scott Kirby and his management team sitting there (laughs) wringing their hands together (laughs) and saying, what can we do next to get these people to pay us more, right? (laughs) I think of Ephraim as probably not a frequent traveler, and he probably hasn't traveled in a little while because I want to call this a big fat wine, but I kind of feel for him a little bit. I have bought tickets on United Airlines, and I have bought a basic economy ticket, and United does all it can to get you to not buy that ticket. He is right. They show you almost like a surgeon warnings general on a cigarette pack. They say, if you purchase this ticket, you're going to be subject to this and this and this, and you can't do this and so on. And so I, I'm not saying that he should have bought a more expensive ticket, but I don't think he should have been surprised when he bought a basic economy ticket. He calls it an economy ticket, but not all economy seats on United have these restrictions. It's specifically basic economy. And when he bought that, he should have expected that what he got was the seat and nothing more. Basic economy is the way big airlines have have decided to compete with lower fare airlines, some of whom have all these kind of fees with every ticket they sell. So I think this is a wine because my guess is he knew he bought basic economy and didn't want to pay the higher price at the time of the purchase. But then when he actually found out what the restrictions really were and realized he really did want to sit with who he was traveling with and really did want to carry bags, maybe he would have been better off buying the higher fare up front. Well, and I don't want to pick on anybody, um, but as I read this, I also thought, I wonder if the kids bought the tickets, not reading the fine print. <laughs> and um, then when they went to check in, they re- ran this obstacle course. And that's when Ephraim was paying attention. <laughs> but being the parent of uh, two grown kids, I, I know that sometimes young adults don't read all the fine print. So that that was my reaction to when, uh, when I read his complaint. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Before we go, I just want to give my shout out of the week to our listeners, actually. Airlines Confidential has now surpassed over 100,000 downloads, and we continue to grow the very impressive clip. So I want to acknowledge our loyal subscriber base, and thank you for spreading the word about the podcast. That's a huge accomplishment. Thank you all for listening. My shout out, Chris, goes to something I mentioned a little earlier in the show. We're in February, and right now, 
No one really knows what this summer is going to be for airlines. But for airlines to have a good, robust summer, that means lots of families going on vacation, especially when most of them canceled their vacation last year, would be a great thing. But for that to happen, we need a vaccine rollout that is more robust than we're currently seeing. So I want to give a huge shout out to the scientists, the medical professionals, the pharmacies, everyone making this vaccine available. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for getting everyone's arm jabbed over the next couple of months, because the more people who can get this vaccine, the better summer the industry is going to have. Amen to that, Ben. Until next week, I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.